Hi, I'm Mark DeMoz, one of the teaching pastors at the Mosaic Church of Central Arkansas, located in the University District of Little Rock's Urban Center, 72204. Welcome to our podcast. Founded in the summer of 2001, Mosaic is a multi-ethnic and economically diverse church where significant percentages of black and white Americans, together with men and women from more than 25 nations, walk, work, and worship God together as one. Learn more at mosaicchurch.net. The following message was recorded live at Mosaic as part of the He Gets Us series in the winter of 2023. Thanks for listening. When I was flying home yesterday from uh, Philadelphia, uh, I uh, typically, you know, I'm reading the news apps and I have different news apps on my phone. And so uh, I, I hit up the CNN news app and going through that app and just, you know, you scroll through it and there's these stories that come up. And here were some, probably half the stories, I'm just reading quickly, but these were some of the stories that popped up on that app yesterday. Teen falls 30 feet to her death while hiking the Moab Rim Trail in Utah. Actor Cody Longo dead at 34, shattered and beyond devastated, said his family and friends. Here's another headline. They lived in harmony with nature. Now their children are dying. Three students dead from fentanyl overdose in Texas community. Over 22,000 now confirmed dead in Turkey and Syria due to the devastating earthquake. There's the war in Ukraine. And the list goes on and on. People being shot, killed in traffic accidents, dying after a lengthy battle with cancer. Not to mention the past three years and more than one million folks dead in the United States attributed in some way to the COVID pandemic. Now, of course, from the beginning of life on earth, death has been a constant. Adam lived 930 years, and then he died. Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. Abraham, in a post-flood environment, lived 175 years, and the Bible then says he too died. It's not so much that we live in a unique culture or time or an age of death as it is that we share this planet with 7 billion others people. It's an age of globalization, an age of information that brings news of death to our smartphones and our smartwatches, as well as to our TV screens and our computer screens 24-7. And the constant talk of death, the ongoing threat of death, the uncertainty of death, and moments of actual death closer to us here at home can leave us feeling vulnerable, exhausted, overwhelmed and anxious, fearful, triggered, and traumatized. Now, as we continue this morning to consider various ways in which our Savior, Jesus, gets us, we should recognize that there may be nothing more that Jesus gets about us, nothing more closely related to his human experience and understanding than death. Jesus gets death. In the most simplistic terms, death, of course, is simply the end of life. Yet we know it's much more than that, isn't it? 
far more than a goodbye, death is a punch in the gut that pains for life. It's a foe we can't ignore, we can't outrun, and we can't control. Death interrupts and resets reality. It's swift in its sting, cold in its calculation, and final in its consequence. Death ends relationships without remorse. And just like that, gone are those we once knew, loved, and all too often took for granted in this life. Their presence, their touch, their voice. In death, we come face to face with our own humanity, don't we? In death, we recognize our own mortality. We experience loss. Fears are surfaced. Meaning is clarified. Character revealed, faith is tested. And questions, oh, the unending questions are asked, but never answered fully. Once landed, the punch of death throws us literally kicking and screaming into an unknown future absent of those we had hoped for, counted on, lived with, looked to, or otherwise always believed would be there with and for us. But then again, just like that, they're gone. Death weakens us in such moments. It stiffens us over time, and it changes us in one way or another for the rest of our lives. In all such ways then, and through his own personal experiences, I want you to know this morning that Jesus gets death. Jesus gets death. Indeed, he's experienced death personally and lived to tell about it. The physical pain and the misery. He knows what it's like to be bruised, poked, prodded, and to bleed. He knows what it's like in his dying hour to ask for that little ice chip. He said on the cross, I'm thirsty. He knows the physical pain. He knows and has experienced mental anguish, the torment that goes along with death. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before his arrest, he cries out to his father, take this cup from me. I don't want to die, please. If there's any other way, take this cup from me. He's experienced mental anguish and torment. Not only physical pain and mental anguish, but he knows the pain, the grief, the sorrow of relational separation. Relational separation that is inevitable and also irreversible in death. As he hung, dying on the cross, he looked down. He saw the apostle John. He said, John, behold your mother, his mother there, Mary. He looks at his mother, Mary, says, Mary, behold your son. It's a passing of relationship because he is about to die. Relational separation that's irreversible in such moments. And not only physical pain, mental anguish, this relational separation, but Jesus knows by experience 
the emotional suffering and anguish that comes with death. On the cross, he cries out to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Emotional anguish and suffering. Now, in spite of all such things, what Jesus also gets is that death is not the end, but only a new beginning. He gets that. He understands it. And he's lived to tell about it. And while death is inevitable, what Jesus wants us to know is that eternal life is assured for those of us who put our confidence in him. Death is inevitable, eternal life, though assured through faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle John tells us this in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, when he writes, and this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has this life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have this life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know, so that you may be assured and confident that those who believe do indeed have eternal life. Therefore, death, though inevitable, eternal life is assured through faith in Jesus Christ. Not only that, but while death seems the victor, the fact is death has been defeated. Luke tells us, In chapter 23, but the other criminal rebuked him. You remember the cross, Christ in the middle, two thieves on either side. Both of the thieves were guilty and deserving of punishment. One turns to Jesus and said, look, if you're so great, if you're the son of God, get us down from here. But as you'll see, as Luke recounts, the other criminal rebuked him. He said this, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our, uh, our deeds deserve. But this man, this man has done nothing. He's done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him and said, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. When that second criminal turned his face and his attention to Jesus, he made a statement of faith, didn't he? He said to Jesus in that moment, he said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's a statement of faith. It's a statement. It's a recognition that Jesus, in fact, was the son of God. It's a statement of faith and recognition, belief that death is not the end, that there is something on the other side and the one who controls it is Jesus. And that's what this thief recognized. And that's why Jesus responded to his statement of faith. Today, you will be with me in paradise. So while death seems the victor, through Jesus Christ, it's been defeated. And not only that, while we might not get death, I want you to know this morning, Jesus does. While we might not get death, he gets it. He gets us. In that same passage, Luke chapter 23, uh, Luke goes on to say this. Now, it was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, and Jesus 
called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And when Jesus had said this, he breathed his last. He called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. He cried out in that moment, to his father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Now think about that statement for a moment, coming from our savior to our father God. It's an expression first of confidence, isn't it? It's an expression of confidence that death is not the end, but only a door that leads to new life and new beginnings. As with loving parents waiting to receive a child into this world, so a loving God, our heavenly father, is waiting even now to receive us into his kingdom. As human hands receive us at physical birth, so do the hands of God receive us at physical death. As human hands usher us into this temporal world, so too do the hands of God someday usher us into eternal life. So while we might not get death, our confidence is the one who does. The one who lived, who died, who rose again and defeated death. And because he did, we too who believe shall one day rise as well. This is the word of the Lord. Do you believe it? And so the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, he says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, those who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage, comfort one another with these words. You know, in this passage, as Paul is explaining it, John, go back if you would one slide. Take a look at this because we see a few things in this passage. First, Paul wants us to know something. There's something we need to know about death. And he wants us to know that those who have died in Christ, he wants us to be informed. He doesn't want us to be uninformed about death. Therefore, he wants us to be informed. In other words, there's something for us to know about death. Why does he want us to know this about death? That those in Christ are not uh, dead. They all have eternal life. Why does he want us to know that? So that even in the midst of death, when we are dealing with the grief, the sorrow, the pain, the sting of death, we will not have to grieve as those in the world without no hope. That's what he wants us to know. He doesn't want us to be informed about that. Yes, we grieve, but not as those, he says, without hope. Grief is a natural expression, by the way, of lament. Lament is a cry to God. The psalmist laments. And lament is always tied to the past, 
and to the future. Lament, though, is in the present. In other words, when we cry out to God, when we lament in grief, sorrow, and pain, we remember, we cry out to God for help in the present. Knowing the God of the past, seeing he's worked, knowing he is going to work in the future, we're crying out in this moment, in the present. God, save me. God, help me. God, comfort me. Be there for me. And we cry out and lament. You know, I think sometimes people... Uh, maybe want to uh, uh, pitch Christians or, or, or preachers. Maybe they want to tell you you're supposed to be robotic in this thing. Oh, no problem. Somebody died. I'm a believer. God's got it all worked out. No way, man. Yeah. Even Jesus cried out on the cross. Even Jesus sent up lament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Grief is a natural part of death and of life and of sorrow is an expression of our love and our concern. We hurt for those things and people that we love. And when separation comes, we grieve. In this passage, Paul acknowledges we're going to grieve. Nothing wrong with grief, but he doesn't want us to be informed. Be informed about your grief. Because even in the midst of grief, there is hope. And that hope is anchored to our faith in Jesus Christ. There's something we should know about death. Even in the midst of death, we will not grieve. Do not have to grieve as those without hope because we believe that he lived, we believe that he died, we believe that he rose again. And because he did, we will too. And so he says, next slide, John, with these words, comfort one another, encourage one another. In the midst of the fear and the anxiety and the anguish, comfort one another. In the midst of the trauma and the triggering, comfort one another. Encourage one another. Remind yourself what you know. Express your feelings of emotion. Go forth with hope. Because though we don't get it, Jesus gets death. With all that in mind, then, we might recognize that not only does Jesus get death, but he gets grief. Jesus gets grief. It's expected. He experienced it. When he came upon the death of a friend, Lazarus, and Mary and Martha were there, and, and, and they were essentially family friends, like uh, best friends, and, and Jesus delayed in coming to Lazarus, and Martha cries out, Jesus, if you would have been here, why did you delay? And she's all upset, and Jesus had a plan, and the whole point is he goes, raises Lazarus, and the Lazarus come forth. It ain't no big deal to Jesus. He gets it, but he knew the grief. See, in one of the shortest, in the shortest verse of the Bible, Jesus wept. He understands grief. He was pained for his friend Lazarus. He entered into the pain with Mary and Martha, his sisters, but he entered into that pain and that grief with hope and with the confidence in who he was and the power of defeat over death. So Jesus gets our grief. It's expected, doesn't surprise him. But as Paul says, we don't grieve as those without hope. Not only that, but Jesus sits with us in times of grief. Did you know that? In those times of sorrow and grief and even of death, when you feel isolated and hopeless, Jesus is there. You don't hear his words in that moment. Did you know that? Most of the time, you're not, you're not going to hear. You know why? Because he's sitting with you. How do you comfort others? in the midst of death and sorrow and grief. You know what you do? You sit with them. They don't need a book. They don't need an answer. 
They don't need an explanation. They need you to sit with them. Sitting with them can be inactive just in terms of presence, but it can also be very active. It's showing up unannounced and going in through the door and doing everyone's laundry. It's taking it upon yourself to go buy groceries, to pick up children after school, to take burden and weight off those who are grieving. Jesus sits with us in his grief, and you may not hear his voice because he's not speaking answers. He's being still, and in the stillness, there is God. He sits with us in our grief. He gets our grief. He sits with us in our grief. Jesus also comforts us in the midst of our grief. He comforts us in the midst of our grief. He gives us hope by the things we know, the words that he's spoken, the words of the apostles, the word of God, his exemplary life. It brings us hope and confidence and comfort in those moments. And as we receive comfort from him in our moment of sorrow and grief and death, then we're able to express that same hope that same life, that same comfort to others in their time of sorrow. And not only that, that Jesus gets our grief and he sits with us in times of grief, he comforts us in the midst of grief, but Jesus gives us hope even as we grieve. You'll notice the tense in this little statement different than the others, even as we grieve, because one thing I've learned about death and grief over 61 years of my life is that grief and sorrow from death never ends. It never ends. You find a way to go on, but you never get over the pain and the sorrow and the grief of death and of those that you love. Find a way to go on in hope, with joy, because there's a God, you're not him, but it takes something away and you learn to live with that pain. And Jesus understands this because even now he's waiting and tearing until the final days of this planet, of this earth, and what comes next. He tarries with us in the midst of grief. He brings to us then this hope as we grieve, and even while we grieve, and when we're triggered in grief, and in days that come, Jesus is there. That hope never leaves us, and it never fades away. So all of these things Jesus gets. He gets it. Even if we don't, he gets death. And so what should be our response? In the midst of our own localized sorrow, pain, grief, even of death, what should be our response in the midst of sorrow and of death? Well, here's just a few things, right? We hold fast to our belief in Jesus. Hold fast to your belief in Jesus. Jesus lived. He died. He rose again. This is our faith. This is what gives us comfort and confidence and hope. That death is not the end, but only a new beginning. And all who have faith in Jesus will not die but as he promised, have everlasting life. Do you believe in Jesus this morning? Do you believe that he was not only a good man, but God incarnate sent to save us from ourselves?
sent to bring us out of this fallen world into his kingdom for all eternity. Do you believe that this morning? In the midst of sorrow and death, we cling and we hold fast to our faith, to our belief. We cry out to Jesus, as we mentioned. We see even Jesus in death, grieving and lamenting, crying out, my God, why have you forsaken me? God's a big boy. Did you know that? He can take it. He's a big boy. He can take it. Once you have your, your time crying, cussing, kicking, screaming with him, at some point, because he sits with you and all that, he says, are we ready to go on? And he picks you up and he dusts you off and together you continue in this life. Feel free and you should, in the midst of sorrow and grief, cry out to God. Not only that, as you see there, we should look for Jesus in the midst of our sorrow and suffering because the fact is he's there. As I mentioned, he may not be verbally speaking, if you will. There, there may not be an answer in the moment. That's not, he's just there with you. But he's always working and you can see him. The Bible tells us that we seek him, we find him when we search for him with all our hearts. And in so many big ways, which we're always looking for the big ways, but in so many more small ways, God shows up. And if your eyes are open and your heart is attuned, even in the midst of sorrow and grief, you look for Jesus and you see him and you find him and you feel him and you know that he is real. And it gives you hope and comfort, not only in the moment, but in all the days of your life. And lastly then, of course, not only believing, Jesus crying out, looking for him, but in moments of sorrow and grief, we're called to trust him even more. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, at the end of that book, he says, let those who suffer according to the will of God, in other words, there is the sovereignty of God, nothing catches him by surprise. And when we who have placed our faith in him, when we suffer, Peter tells us how to suffer. Let those who suffer according to the will of God, under the sovereignty of God, entrust their souls to a faithful creator and do what is right. To trust God is to say you obey God. To trust God is to say that you fear God. Like the thief on the cross, don't you fear him? To trust in the Lord is not only to obey him and to fear him, but it is to love him. Did you know in the Old Testament, you could say, I love God, I fear God, I obey God. All those words are equated. They basically mean the same thing. When Abram obeyed God, Abram was fearing God, and Abram was loving God. They're interchangeable words. So love, fear, obedience, they're all essentially the same. We express it in different ways, but ultimately, it's our trust in him. There's a God, and I'm not him. And in the midst of sorrow and suffering and grief, we continue to trust him through obedience, through respect, through that reverence of fear, and we express to him our love. You may not get death, but I'm here to tell you this morning that he does. Jesus gets it, and he gets us. So a number of years ago, my wife and I, of course, uh, had children, uh, birthed four children here. And so the first one, 1989, was Zach. Uh, and then three years later, 1992, came along our daughter, Emily. 
Uh, years later, in 1996, came Will. In 1998, Kate, four adult children. But in between Emily and Will, in 1995, uh, my wife Linda delivered our third child, Allie Grace, stillborn on Easter morning. Uh, their anomaly was shown uh, about 24 weeks or so, 22 weeks. It, it showed on the ultrasound. It was called at the time a non-viable pregnancy. The child will not live. We cried out to God. We yelled at God. We prayed for healing. We prayed for miracles. And for the next eight weeks, essentially, we uh, did what we're talking about here. Trusting God, believing in God, reaffirming our faith, obeying him, fearing him, reverently calling upon him, crying out in lament. But over eight weeks, and then on that Easter morning of 1995, our daughter, little heartbeat, had ceased, and she was born uh, in stillbirth. Again, we had Will, surprisingly, thankfully, in 1996, and Kate in 98. And so by the year 2000, uh, Emily was about eight years old or so, seven to eight years old, and Kate was two years old. And our daughter, Allie Grace, we named her, we buried her right out here. And, and so uh, Emily, again, about eight-ish years old, Kate was two. It was 2000, so five years after Allie had uh, died. And we had a family friend. And this woman was from the South, and she was a seamstress. And among other things, uh, she uh, wanted to put these girls in like a christening gown. Now, they were older, but it was like an Easter gown, right? An Easter dress. And, and so she determined, and with my wife, uh, she was going to make our daughters, Emily and Kate, eight and two, uh, seven and two, they're going to make uh, our daughters these beautiful dresses. And she did. Man, they were beautiful, like all frilly and white. And, and, and I, I don't understand these things, but she was from the South. And so there was the, it was not only lace and patterns, but there was meaning in it all. Uh, maybe some of you know that, right? Or maybe you've experienced that, but there's some this meaning. And they, they, she put in patterns and certain ribbon and lace and, and, and other little things like frills, if you will, on these dresses. And they all had meaning and it was beautiful. And these were their Easter dresses in 2000. So uh, Linda and I took our daughters uh, over to her house on Easter. And, and this woman had a, a, a two-story house. And she had this big, very grand staircase that came down from the second floor. And at the base of the staircase was a grand piano. And so we'd taken the piano bench and we put it there at the bottom of the stairs. And, uh, and then Linda positioned our daughters, Emily and Kate, and got the dresses all looking right, just like you do. And, and so we started taking pictures. Now, uh, I know for a number of you in this room, you're not even going to know what I'm talking about next. But this is back in the day where you had a little box of a camera. And it, it was a little yellow or orange, whatever. And there was no such thing as a smartphone or instant photos or whatever. And so we were taking pictures with cameras, but one of those cameras, you know, it's this, it's a, uh, I don't even remember what they called it, a disposable camera, right? And, and so it's this little box of a camera and you hold it up and you go like this, and you click like 36 pictures on it. And then you go to target for the film to be developed. Now I know I'm speaking crazy language to some of you in here, right? But that's what you did. So we took, we took the, these pictures on this little box camera, ran it over to Target. And you know, you got to wait like two or three days back in the day to get the film developed. So we're waiting, waiting. Finally, we go up and get the film. And we bring back all these hard copies of photos. That's all you had back in the day. 
And so Linda and I were going through the photos, looking, of course, you know how you do, looking at each one. And at the end of the day, you're looking for the best one. Do you get a good shot of the girls and the dresses and all that? And so one by one, we're going through this, these, these pictures. And, uh, and then we came across this one um, that looked to be double exposed. Again, I'm dating myself. What is a double exposed picture, right? <laughs> But, you know, this is back in the day when people are processing these pictures by, by hand or later on uh, in, in their machines. Sometimes one picture would kind of get intersected or crossed over another. So when you held the picture and you looked at both of them, it looked like two pictures in one. And so it was all kind of blurry or messed up. And, and, and you basically throw those pictures out. They were double exposed. And so we were going through the pictures. We came across one of these that we assumed to be double exposed. And we were about to toss it aside, throw it in the trash can. And I don't remember if it was Linda or me, but one of us said, wait a second. And we pulled that picture back and put it on the counter and began to look at that picture more closely. This is Easter morning, 2000, five years after the death of our third child, Allie Grace. Take a look at that picture. You can see where the stairs seem to be overlapped, and maybe it's, a, at first glance, a double-exposed picture. But as we began to study this picture more closely, we realized there, weren't, there aren't just two girls in this picture. There's three. You can clearly see Emily in the middle of the picture. She's our oldest, about eight or nine years old, something like that. And you can see little Kate. She's got a little, we called it a binky in her mouth, right? And the bows on their hair. And so she's kind of looking there. You see her towards the back. But then there's another girl in the foreground. Now, this girl, her head is turned away. We started looking. Look at the shoes. At the bottom of the picture, you clearly see Emily's shoes, her foot a little larger, You may not be able to see it on the screen, but you can see how Kate has her knees up. And so her little shoe is in the middle of the the dress that's in the foreground. But then just above Emily's shoe at the bottom of the picture, there's another foot altogether. And it's a different sized shoe. There's no bow in that girl's hair. And on and on we looked and we made comparisons. And it's very clear when you look at it, Can you see it? Can you see it yourself? There's not just two girls, there's three. And why in the world would Emily's arm be out and one isn't even facing the camera? Now, I don't claim to understand or to know uh, how this happened. I just know it did. And it's no mistake that on Easter of 2000, somehow our daughter, Allie Grace, wanted to be in that picture. And somehow, in the sovereignty of God, he allowed it. He allowed in this brief moment, at the bottom of a stairway to heaven, so to speak, our third daughter, our second daughter, third, uh, three daughters, to somehow be made manifest in this picture, to be part of the family, to have her little Easter dress on. And in that moment, though I don't understand it, God gave us tremendous hope and confidence and encouragement. We affirmed what we already believed, but now we had just this little moment, this window into the spiritual realm, just to give us even more hope and confidence, and even on this day to encourage each of you
that death is not the end. For those of us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, death is not the end. It's only a door that leads to new life, and that life is eternal. Let us pray. I don't know where you are this morning in terms of sorrow, pain, death, grief. I know some folks in our church have recently lost loved ones. By the way, we speak of loss. Maybe we might say, my daughter, we lost my child. I'm just here to tell you, she's not lost. I know right where she is. And while she will not return to me and Linda, as David said, someday we will go to her. So I don't know where you're at, how far ago, how long ago, maybe pain and sorrow, grief, death entered in, or how fresh it is. But maybe you're here this morning and just needed someone to sit with you to give you hope, to remind you there's a God and he's alive and well and he's in control. And we're here after this service, our prayer team in the back, just folks that'll sit with you or even up here if you want to come and and meet me at the front for a moment and just a hug, just a tear to let you know that Jesus is near in the midst of sorrow, pain, and grief whether that was yesterday or many, many years ago. But maybe you hear this message this morning, you know, and I'd be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity. Maybe you're not quite sure about this Jesus. Maybe you're struggling like many in our world today. They, they might appreciate Jesus. They kind of believe that he lived, but they're struggling with this idea that somehow God became man but somehow he rose from the dead. Maybe you're, maybe you're leaning in this morning. Maybe you feel or sense that God is here with you, speaking to you. Maybe you're not sure that if you died today, God forbid, what would happen to you? The Bible's pretty clear. Those who have Jesus have life and those that don't, do not. I don't know how any more plain it can be. And having Jesus doesn't mean you're perfect. Lord knows I'm not. We are not saved from this world into eternal life because of anything we've done or because of our perfection. But it's all because of what he's done and his perfection. It's because of his great love for us. And if someone was offering you a million dollars free and clear, wouldn't you take it? Why in the world would you turn away the gift of eternal life? If that's you this morning, and maybe you're not sure, as I said, but you want to leave here sure. Again, it's no gimmicks, no tricks, nothing I can put in your pocket. All I can say is the word of God says this, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. So if that's you this morning, wanted to make firm a commitment of your life, of your faith in Jesus, Pray with me this prayer. Dear Jesus, I don't understand everything, but I'm feeling you in this moment and I'm being drawn to put my hope and my faith in you. I believe that you live. I believe that you died. And by faith right now, I am believing that you rose from the dead and that you love me as your own 
and I want to be known and I want to be loved by you. So into your hands this morning, I commit my spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love to say hello to you. Again, prayer warriors in the back, people that'll just sit with you in prayer. And after the service, again, if you're new in the last several months or made that prayer, I'll be in the cafe to hang out with you. God bless you. Thanks for being here at Mosaic. I hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message recorded live at Mosaic Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Take a moment right now to subscribe on your favorite platform and get our podcasts pushed right to your device each week. We welcome your comments. If you live in central Arkansas, we hope you'll visit us soon in person. And thanks also for considering our financial needs. To donate, visit mosaicchurch.net. That's mosaicchurch.net. On behalf of all of us at Mosaic, I'm Mark DeMoz. Thanks again for listening.